The second part of Chapter Two of A House to Let. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. A House to Let by Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins, Elizabeth Gaskell, Adelaide Anne Proctor. The second part of Chapter Two: The Manchester Marriage. They had been there about a year when Mr. Openshaw suddenly informed his wife that he had determined to heal long-standing feuds, and had asked his uncle and aunt Chadwick to come and pay them a visit and see London. Mrs. Openshaw had never seen this uncle and aunt of her husband's. Years before she had married him there had been a quarrel. All she knew was that Mr. Chadwick was a small manufacturer in a country town in South Lancashire. She was extremely pleased that the breach was to be healed, and began making preparations to render their visit pleasant. They arrived at last. Going to see London was such an event to them that Mrs. Chadwick had made all new linen fresh for the occasion from nightcaps downwards and as for gowns, ribbons, and collars, she might have been going into the wilds of Canada where never a shop is, so large was her stock. A fortnight before the day of her departure for London, she had formally called to take leave of all her acquaintance, saying she should need all the intermediate time for packing up. It was like a second wedding in her imagination and to complete the resemblance which an entirely new wardrobe made between the two events, her husband brought her back from Manchester, on the last market-day before they set off, a gorgeous pearl and amethyst brooch, saying, "'Lunnon should see the Lancashire folks knew a handsome thing when they saw it.' For some time after Mr. and Mrs. Chadwick arrived at the Openshaws, there was no opportunity for wearing this brooch but at length they obtained an order to see Buckingham Palace, and the spirit of loyalty demanded that Mrs. Chadwick should wear her best clothes in visiting the abode of her sovereign. On her return she hastily changed her dress, for Mr. Openshaw had planned that they should go to Richmond, drink tea, and return by moonlight. Accordingly, about five o'clock, Mr. and Mrs. Openshaw and Mr. and Mrs. Chadwick set off. The housemaid and cook sat below. Nora hardly knew where. She was always engrossed in the nursery, in tending her two children, and in sitting by the restless, excitable Ailsie till she fell asleep. By and by, the housemaid Bessie tapped gently at the door. Nora went to her, and they spoke in whispers. "'Nurse, there's someone downstairs, wants you?' "'Wants me?' "'Who is it?' "'A gentleman.' "'A gentleman? Nonsense!' "'Well, a man, then. And he asked for you. And he rung at the front door-bell and has walked into the dining-room.' "'You should never have let him!' exclaimed Nora. "'Master and Mrs. Out.' "'I did not want him to come in. But when he heard you lived here, he walked past me, and sat down on the first chair, and said, "'Tell her to come and speak to me.' "'There is no gas lighted in the room, and supper is all set out.' "'He'll be off with the spoons,' exclaimed Nora, putting the housemaid's fear into words, and preparing to leave the room, first, however, giving a look to Ailsie, 
sleeping soundly and calmly. Downstairs she went, uneasy fears stirring in her bosom. Before she entered the dining-room she provided herself with a candle, and with it in her hand she went in, looking round her in the darkness for her visitor. He was standing up, holding by the table. Nora and he looked at each other, gradual recognition coming into their eyes. "'Nora?' at length he asked. "'Who are you?' asked Nora, with the sharp tones of alarm and incredulity. "'I don't know you,' trying by futile words of disbelief to do away with the terrible fact before her. "'Am I so changed?' he said pathetically. "'I dare say I am. But, Nora, tell me,' he breathed hard, "'where is my wife? Is she—is she alive?' He came nearer to Nora, and would have taken her hand, but she backed away from him, looking at him all the time with staring eyes, as if he were some horrible object. Yet he was a handsome, bronzed, good-looking fellow, with beard and moustache, giving him a foreign-looking aspect. But his eyes! There was no mistaking those eager, beautiful eyes. The very same that Nora had watched not half an hour ago, till sleep stole softly over them. "'Tell me, Nora, I can bear it. I have feared it so often. Is she dead?' Nora still kept silence. "'She is dead!' He hung on Nora's words and looks, as if for confirmation or contradiction. "'What shall I do?' groaned Nora. "'Oh, sir, why did you come? How did you find me out? Where have you been? We thought you dead, we did indeed!' She poured out words and questions to gain time, as if time would help her. "'Nora, answer me this question, straight by yes or no. Is my wife dead?' "'No, she is not,' said Nora, slowly and heavily. "'Oh, what a relief! Did she receive my letters? But perhaps you don't know. Why did you leave her? Where is she? Oh, Nora, tell me all, quickly.' "'Mr. Frank,' said Nora at last, almost driven to bay by her terror, lest her mistress should return at any moment and find him there, unable to consider what was best to be done or said, rushing at something decisive because she could not endure her present state. "'Mr. Frank, we never heard a line from you, and the ship-owner said you'd gone down, you and everyone else. We thought you were dead, if ever man was.' "'And poor Miss Alice and her little sick, helpless child! "'Oh, sir, you must guess it!' cried the poor creature at last, "'bursting out into a passionate fit of crying. "'For indeed I cannot tell it! "'But it was no one's fault! God help us all this night!' "'Nora had sat down. "'She trembled too much to stand. "'He took her hands in his... He squeezed them hard, as if by physical pressure the truth could be wrung out. "'Nora,' 
this time his tone was calm, stagnant as despair. "'She has married again.' Nora shook her head sadly. The grasp slowly relaxed. The man had fainted. There was brandy in the room. Nora forced some drops into Mr. Frank's mouth, chafed his hands, and, when mere animal life returned, before the mind poured in its flood of memories and thoughts, she lifted him up and rested his head against her knees. Then she put a few crumbs of bread taken from the supper-table, soaked in brandy, into his mouth. Suddenly he sprang to his feet. "'Where is she? Tell me this instant!' He looked so wild, so mad, so desperate, that Nora felt herself to be in bodily danger. But her time of dread had gone by. She had been afraid to tell him the truth, and then she had been a coward. Now her wits were sharpened by the sense of his desperate state. He must leave the house. She would pity him afterwards, but now she must rather command and upbraid, for he must leave the house before her mistress came home. That one necessity stood clear before her. "'She is not here. That is enough for you to know. Nor can I say exactly where she is,' which was true to the letter, if not to the spirit. "'Go away and tell me where to find you to-morrow, and I will tell you all. My master and mistress may come back at any minute, and then what would become of me with a strange man in the house?' Such an argument was too petty to touch his excited mind. "'I don't care for your master and mistress. "'If your master is a man, he must feel for me, "'poor shipwrecked sailor that I am, "'kept for years a prisoner among savages, "'always, always, always thinking of my wife and my home, "'dreaming of her by night, talking to her, "'though she could not hear, by day. "'I loved her more than all heaven and earth put together.' "'Tell me where she is, this instant, you wretched woman, "'who salved over her wickedness to her, as you do to me.' "'The clock struck ten. "'Desperate positions required desperate measures. "'If you will leave the house now, "'I will come to you to-morrow and tell you all. "'What is more, you shall see your child now. "'She lies sleeping upstairs. "'Oh, sir!' "'You have a child. You do not know that as yet. "'A little weakly girl, with just a heart and soul beyond her years. "'We have reared her up with such care. "'We watched her, for we thought for many a year she might die any day, "'and we tended her, and no hard thing has come near her, "'and no rough word has ever been said to her. "'And now you come and will take her life into your hand, and will crush it. "'Strangers to her have been kind to her, but her own father. "'Mr. Frank, I am her nurse, and I love her, and I tend her, "'and I would do anything for her that I could. "'Her mother's heart beats as hers beats, "'and if she suffers a pain, her mother trembles all over.' If she is happy, it is her mother that smiles and is glad. 
If she is growing stronger, her mother is healthy. If she dwindles, her mother languishes. If she dies, well, I don't know. It is not everyone can lie down and die when they wish it. Come upstairs, Mr. Frank, and see your child. Seeing her will do good to your poor heart. Then go away, in God's name, just this one night. Tomorrow, if need be, you can do anything. Kill us all, if you will. Or show yourself a great, grand man, whom God will bless for ever and ever. Come, Mr. Frank, the look of a sleeping child is sure to give peace. She led him upstairs, at first almost helping his steps, till they came near the nursery door. She had almost forgotten the existence of little Edwin. It struck upon her with a fright as the shaded light fell upon the other cot, but she skilfully threw that corner of the room into darkness and let the light fall on the sleeping Ailsie. The child had thrown down the coverings, and her deformity, as she lay with her back to them, was plainly visible through her slight nightgown. Her little face, deprived of the lustre of her eyes, looked wan and pinched, and had a pathetic expression in it, even as she slept. The poor father looked and looked with hungry, wistful eyes, into which the big tears came swelling up slowly and dropped heavily down, as he stood trembling and shaking all over. Nora was angry with herself for growing impatient of the length of time that long, lingering gaze lasted. She thought that she waited for full half an hour before Frank stirred. And then, instead of going away, he sank down on his knees by the bedside, and buried his face in the clothes. Little Ailsie stirred uneasily. Nora pulled him up in terror. She could afford no more time even for prayer in her extremity of fear— for surely the next moment would bring her mistress home. She took him forcibly by the arm, but as he was going, his eye lighted on the other bed. He stopped. Intelligence came back into his face. His hands clenched. "'His child?' he asked. "'Her child,' replied Nora. "'God watches over him,' said she instinctively for Frank's looks excited her fears, and she needed to remind herself of the protector of the helpless. "'God has not watched over me,' he said in despair, his thoughts apparently recoiling on his own desolate, deserted state. But Nora had no time for pity. Tomorrow she would be as compassionate as her heart prompted. At length, she guided him downstairs, and shut the outer door, and bolted it, as if by bolts to keep out facts. Then she went back into the dining-room, and defaced all traces of his presence as far as she could. She went upstairs to the nursery, and sat there, her head on her hand, thinking what was to come of all this misery.
It seemed to her very long before they did return, yet it was hardly eleven o'clock. She so heard the loud, hearty Lancashire voices on the stairs, and for the first time she understood the contrast of the desolation of the poor man who had so lately gone forth in lonely despair. It almost put her out of patience to see Mrs. Openshaw come in, calmly smiling, handsomely dressed, happy, easy, to inquire after her children. "'Did Elsie go to sleep comfortably?' she whispered to Nora. "'Yes.' Her mother bent over her, looking at her slumbers with the soft eyes of love. How little she dreamed who had looked on her last! Then she went to Edwin, with perhaps less wistful anxiety in her countenance, but more of pride. She took off her things to go down to supper. Nora saw her no more that night. Beside the door into the passage the sleeping nursery opened out of Mr. and Mrs. Openshaw's room, in order that they might have the children more immediately under their own eyes. Early the next summer morning Mrs. Openshaw was awakened by Ailsie's startled call of, "'Mother! Mother!' She sprang up, put on her dressing-gown, and went to her child. Ailsie was only half awake, and in a not uncommon state of terror. "'Who was he, mother? Tell me!' "'Who, my darling? No one is here. You have been dreaming, love. Waken up quite. See, it is broad daylight.' "'Yes,' said Ailsie, looking round her, then clinging to her mother, said, "'But a man was here in the night, mother.' "'Nonsense, little goose! No man has ever come near you.' "'Yes, he did. He stood there just by Nora, a man with hair and a beard, and he knelt down and said his prayers. Nora knows he was here, mother,' half angrily, as Mrs. Openshaw shook her head in smiling incredulity. "'Well, we will ask Nora when she comes.' said Mrs. Openshaw, soothingly. "'But we won't talk any more about him now. It is not five o'clock. It is too early for you to get up. Shall I fetch you a book and read to you?' "'Don't leave me, mother,' said the child, clinging to her. So Mrs. Openshaw sat on the bedside, talking to Ailsie, and telling her of what they had done at Richmond the evening before until the little girl's eyes slowly closed, and she once more fell asleep. "'What was the matter?' asked Mr. Openshaw, as his wife returned to bed. Ailsie wakened up in a fright with some story of a man having been in the room to say his prayers. A dream, I suppose. And no more was said at the time. Mrs. Openshaw had almost forgotten the whole affair when she got up about seven o'clock. But by and by she heard a sharp altercation going on in the nursery, Nora speaking angrily to Elsie, a most unusual thing. Both Mr. and Mrs. Openshaw listened in astonishment. "'Hold your tongue, Elsie. Let me hear none of your dreams. Never let me hear you tell that story again.' Elsie began to cry. Mr. Openshaw opened the door of communication before his wife could say a word. "'Nora, come here.' The nurse stood at the door, defiant. She perceived she had been heard, but she was desperate. "'Don't let me hear you speak in that manner to Ailsie again,' he
he said sternly, and shut the door. Nora was infinitely relieved, for she had dreaded some questioning, and a little blame for sharp speaking was what she could well bear if cross-examination was let alone. Downstairs they went, Mr. Openshaw carrying Ailsie, the sturdy Edwin coming step by step, right foot foremost, always holding his mother's hand. Each child was placed in a chair by the breakfast-table, and then Mr. and Mrs. Openshaw stood together at the window, awaiting their visitor's appearance, and making plans for the day. There was a pause. Suddenly Mr. Openshaw turned to Ailsie, and said, "'What a little goosey somebody is with their dreams, waking a poor tired mother in the middle of the night, with a story of a man being in the room?' "'Father, I'm sure I saw him.' said Ailsie, half crying. "'I don't want to make Nora angry, but I was not asleep, for all she says I was. I had been asleep, and I wakened up quite wide awake, though I was so frightened. I kept my eyes nearly shut, and I saw the man quite plain, a great brown man with a beard. He said his prayers, and then he looked at Edwin, and then Nora took him by the arm and led him away, after they had whispered a bit together.' "'Now my little woman must be reasonable,' said Mr. Openshaw, who was always patient with Ailsie. "'There was no man in the house last night at all. No man comes into the house, as you know, if you think. Much less goes up into the nursery. But sometimes we dream something has happened, and the dream is so like reality that you are not the first person, little woman, who has stood out that the thing has really happened.' "'But indeed it was not a dream,' said Ailsie, beginning to cry. Just then Mr. and Mrs. Chadwick came down, looking grave and discomposed. All during breakfast-time they were silent and uncomfortable. As soon as the breakfast-things were taken away, and the children had been carried upstairs, Mr. Chadwick began, in an evidently preconcerted manner, to inquire if his nephew was certain that all his servants were honest, for that Mrs. Chadwick had that morning missed a very valuable brooch, which she had worn the day before. She remembered taking it off when she came home from Buckingham Palace. Mr. Openshaw's face contracted into hard lines, grew like what it was before he had known his wife and her child. He rang the bell even before his uncle had done speaking. It was answered by the housemaid. "'Mary, was any one here last night, while we were away?' "'A man, sir, came to speak to Nora.' "'To speak to Nora. Who was he? How long did he stay?' "'I'm sure I can't tell, sir. He came perhaps nine. I went up to tell Nora in the nursery, and she came down to speak to him. She let him out, sir.' She will know who he was, and how long he stayed. She waited a moment to be asked any more questions, but she was not, so she went away. A minute afterwards Openshaw made as though he were going out of the room, but his wife laid her hand on his arm. "'Do not speak to her before the children,' she said in her low, quiet voice. "'I will go up and question her.' "'No, I must speak to her.' "'You must know,' said he, turning to his uncle and aunt, "'my missus has an old servant, 
as faithful as ever woman was, I do believe, as far as love goes, but, at the same time, who does not always speak truth, as even the missus must allow. Now my notion is that this Nora of ours has been come over by some good-for-nothing chap, for she's at the time of life when they say women brave her husbands, any good lord, any, and has let him into our house, and the chap has made off with your brooch, and may happen many another thing beside. It's only saying that Nora is soft-hearted, and does not stick at a white lie. That's all, missus. It was curious to notice how his tone, his eyes, his whole face, changed as he spoke to his wife. But he was the resolute man through all. She knew better than to oppose him. So she went upstairs, and told Nora her master wanted to speak to her and that she would take care of the children in the meanwhile. Nora rose to go without a word. Her thoughts were these. "'If they tear me to pieces, they shall never know through me. He may come, and then just Lord have mercy upon us all, for some of us are dead folk to a certainty. But he shall do it, not me.' You may fancy, now, her look of determination as she faced her master alone in the dining-room. Mr. and Mrs. Chadwick, having left the affair in their nephew's hands, seeing that he took it up with such vehemence. "'Nora, who was that man that came to my house last night?' "'Man, sir!' as if infinitely surprised, but it was only to gain time. "'Yes, the man whom Mary let in.' whom she went upstairs to the nursery to tell you about, whom you came down to speak to, the same chap, I make no doubt, whom you took into the nursery to have your talk out with, whom Elsie saw, and afterwards dreamed about, thinking, poor wench, she saw him say his prayers, where nothing, I'll be bound, was farther from his thoughts, who took Mrs. Chadwick's brooch, valued ten pounds. Now, Nora, don't go off. I'm as sure as that my name's Thomas Openshaw, that you knew nothing of this robbery. But I do think you've been imposed on, and that's the truth. Some good-for-nothing chap has been making up to you, and you've been just like all other women, and have turned a soft place in your heart to him. And he came last night a love-yering, and you had him up in the nursery, and he made use of his opportunities, and made off with a few things on his way down.' "'Come now, Nora, it's no blame to you, only you must not be such a fool again. "'Tell us,' he continued, "'what name he gave you, Nora. "'I'll be bound it was not the right one, but it will be a clue for the police.' Nora drew herself up. "'You may ask that question, and taunt me with me being single, "'and with me credulity, as you will, Master Openshaw. "'You'll get no answer from me.' As for the brooch, and the story of theft and burglary, if any friend ever came to see me, which I defy you to prove, and deny, he'd be just as much above doing such a thing as you yourself, Mr. Openshaw, and more so too, for I'm not at all sure as everything you have is rightly come by, or would be yours long if every man had his own. She meant, of course, his wife but he understood her to refer to his property in goods and chattels. "'Now, my good woman,' said he, 
I'll just tell you truly, I never trusted you out and out, but my wife liked you, and I thought you had many a good point about you. If you once begin to source me, I'll have the police to you, and get out the truth in a court of justice, if you'll not tell it me quietly and civilly here. Now the best thing you can do is quietly to tell me who the fellow is. Look here, a man comes to my house, asks for you, you take him upstairs, a valuable brooch is missing next day. We know that you and Mary and Cook are honest, but you refuse to tell us who the man is. Indeed, you've told one lie already about him, saying no one was here last night. Now I just put it to you, what do you think a policeman would say to this, or a magistrate? A magistrate would soon make you tell the truth, my good woman. There's never the creature born that should get it out of me, said Nora, not unless I choose to tell. I've a great mind to see, said Mr. Openshaw, growing angry at the defiance. Then, checking himself, he thought, before he spoke again, Nora, for your missus's sake I don't want to go to extremities. Be a sensible woman if you can. It's no great disgrace, after all, to have been taken in. I ask you once more, as a friend, who was this man whom you let into my house last night? No answer. He repeated the question in an impatient tone. Still no answer. Nora's lips were set in determination not to speak. "'Then there is but one thing to be done. I shall send for a policeman.' "'You will not,' said Nora, starting forwards. "'You shall not, sir. No policeman shall touch me. I know nothing of the brooch, but I know this. Ever since I was four-and-twenty I have thought more of your wife than of myself. Ever since I saw her, a poor motherless girl put upon in her uncle's house, I have thought more of serving her than of serving myself. I have cared for her and her child as nobody ever cared for me. I don't cast blame on you, sir, but I still say it's ill giving up one's life to any one. For at the end they will turn round upon you and forsake you. Why does not my missus come herself to suspect me? Maybe she is gone for the police. But I don't stay here either for police or magistrate or master. You're an unlucky lot. I believe there's a curse on you. I'll leave you this very day. Yes, I'll leave that poor Ailsie too, I will. No good will ever come to you. Mr. Openshaw was utterly astonished at this speech, most of which was completely unintelligible to him, as may easily be supposed. Before he could make up his mind what to say or what to do, Nora had left the room. I do not think he had ever really intended to send for the police to this old servant of his wife's, for he had never for a moment doubted her perfect honesty, but he had intended to compel her to tell him who the man was, and in this he was baffled. He was consequently much irritated. He returned to his uncle and aunt in a state of great annoyance and perplexity, and told them he could get nothing out of the woman that some man had been in the house the night before, but that she refused to tell who he was. At this moment his wife came in, greatly agitated, 
and asked what had happened to Nora, for that she had put on her things in passionate haste, and had left the house. "'This looks suspicious,' said Mr. Chadwick. "'It's not the way in which an honest person would have acted.' Mr. Openshaw kept silence. He was sorely perplexed. But Mrs. Openshaw turned round on Mr. Chadwick, with a sudden fierceness no one ever saw in her before. "'You don't know Nora, Uncle. She is gone because she is deeply hurt at being suspected. Oh, I wish I had seen her, that I had spoken to her myself. She would have told me anything.' Alice wrung her hands. "'I must confess,' continued Mr. Chadwick to his nephew in a lower voice, "'I can't make you out.' You used to be a word and a blow, and oftenest the blow first, and now, when there is every cause for suspicion, you just do not. Your missus is a very good woman, I grant, but she may have been put upon as well as other folk, I suppose. If you don't send for the police, I shall. Very well, replied Mr. Openshaw, surlily. I can't clear Nora. She won't clear herself, as I believe she might, if she would. Only I wash my hands of it for I am sure the woman herself is honest, and she's lived a long time with my wife, and I don't like her to come to shame. But she will then be forced to clear herself. That, at any rate, will be a good thing. Very well, very well. I am heart-sick of the whole business. Come, Alice, come up to the babies. They'll be in a sore way. I tell you, Uncle, he said, turning round once more to Mr. Chadwick, suddenly and sharply, after his eye had fallen on Alice's wan, tearful, anxious face. "'I'll have none sending for the police after all. I'll buy my aunt twice as handsome a brooch this very day. But I'll not have Nora suspected, and my missus plagued. There's for you.' He and his wife left the room. Mr. Chadwick quietly waited till he was out of hearing, and then said to his wife, for all Tom's heroics, I'm just quietly going for a detective, wench. Thou needs no nout about it. He went to the police station, and made a statement of the case. He was gratified by the impression which the evidence against Nora seemed to make. The men all agreed in his opinion, and steps were to be immediately taken to find out where she was. Most probably, as they suggested, she had gone at once to the man, who, to all appearance, was her lover. When Mr. Chadwick asked how they would find her out, they smiled, shook their heads, and spoke of mysterious but infallible ways and means. He returned to his nephew's house with a very comfortable opinion of his own sagacity. He was met by his wife with a penitent face. "'Oh, must I have found my brooch! "'It was just sticking by its pin in the flounce of my brown silk "'that I wore yesterday. "'I took it off in a hurry, and it must have caught in it, "'and I hung up my gown in the closet. "'Just now, when I was going to fold it up, there was the brooch. "'I'm very vexed, but I never dreamt but what it was lost.' "'Her husband, muttering something very like, "'Confound thee and thy brooch, too! "'I wish I'd never given it thee!' snatched up his hat, and rushed back to the station, hoping to be in time to stop the police from searching for Nora. But a detective was already gone off on the errand. Where was Nora? 
half mad with the strain of the fearful secret, she had hardly slept through the night for thinking what must be done. Upon this terrible state of mind had come Ailsie's questions, showing that she had seen the man, as the unconscious child called her father. Lastly came the suspicion of her honesty. She was little less than crazy as she ran upstairs and dashed on her bonnet and shawl, leaving all else, even her purse, behind her. In that house she would not stay. That was all she knew or was clear about. She would not even see the children again, for fear it should weaken her. She feared above everything Mr. Frank's return to claim his wife. She could not tell what remedy there was for a sorrow so tremendous for her to stay to witness. The desire of escaping from the coming event was a stronger motive for her departure than her soreness about the suspicions directed against her, although this last had been the final goad to the course she took. She walked away almost at headlong speed, sobbing as she went, as she had not dared to do during the past night, for fear of exciting wonder in those who might hear her. Then she stopped. An idea came into her mind that she would leave London altogether, and betake herself to her native town of Liverpool. She felt in her pocket for her purse as she drew near the Euston Square station with this intention. She had left it at home. Her poor head aching, her eyes swollen with crying, she had to stand still and think as well as she could where next she should bend her steps. Suddenly the thought flashed into her mind that she would go and find out poor Mr. Frank. She had been hardly kind to him the night before, though her heart had bled for him ever since. She remembered his telling her, as she inquired for his address, almost as she had pushed him out of the door, of some hotel in a street not far distant from Euston Square. Thither she went, with what intention she hardly knew but to assuage her conscience by telling him how much she pitied him. In her present state she felt herself unfit to counsel, or restrain, or assist, or do aught else but sympathise and weep. The people of the inn said such a person had been there, had arrived only the day before, had gone out soon after his arrival leaving his luggage in their care, but had never come back. Nora asked for leave to sit down and await the gentleman's return. The landlady, pretty secure in the deposit of luggage against any probable injury, showed her into a room, and quietly locked the door on the outside. Nora was utterly worn out and fell asleep, a shivering, starting, uneasy slumber which lasted for hours. The detective, meanwhile, had come up with her some time before she entered the hotel, into which he followed her. Asking the landlady to detain her for an hour or so, without giving any reason beyond showing his authority, which made the landlady applaud herself a good deal for having locked her in, he went back to the police-station to report his proceedings. He could have taken her directly, but his object was, if possible, to trace out the man who was supposed to have committed the robbery. 
Then he heard of the discovery of the brooch, and consequently did not care to return. Nora slept till even the summer evening began to close in. Then up. Someone was at the door. It would be Mr. Frank, and she dizzily pushed back her ruffled grey hair, which had fallen over her eyes, and stood looking to see him. Instead, there came in Mr. Openshaw and a policeman. "'This is Nora Kennedy,' said Mr. Openshaw. "'Oh, sir,' said Nora, "'I did not touch the brooch. Indeed I did not. Oh, sir, I cannot live to be thought so badly of.' And very sick and faint, she suddenly sank down on the ground. To her surprise, Mr. Openshaw raised her up very tenderly. Even the policeman helped to lay her on the sofa, and at Mr. Openshaw's desire he went for some wine and sandwiches, for the poor gaunt woman lay there almost as if dead with weariness and exhaustion. "'Nora,' said Mr. Openshaw in his kindest voice, "'the brooch is found. It was hanging to Mrs. Chadwick's gown. I beg your pardon.' "'Most truly I beg your pardon for having troubled you about it. "'My wife is almost broken-hearted. "'Eat, Nora, or stay first drink this glass of wine,' said he, "'lifting her head, pouring a little down her throat. "'As she drank, she remembered where she was, and who she was waiting for. "'She suddenly pushed Mr. Openshaw away, saying, "'Oh, sir, you must go. You must not stop a minute. "'If he comes back he will kill you.' "'Alas, Nora, I do not know who he is. "'But someone is gone away who will never come back, "'someone who knew you, and whom I am afraid you cared for.' "'I don't understand you, sir,' said Nora, "'her master's kind and sorrowful manner "'bewildering her yet more than his words. "'The policeman had left the room at Mr. Openshaw's desire, "'and they too were alone. "'You know what I mean?' "'When I say someone is gone who will never come back, I mean that he is dead.' "'Who?' said Nora, trembling all over. "'A poor man has been found in the Thames this morning, drowned.' "'Did he drown himself?' asked Nora solemnly. "'God only knows,' replied Mr. Openshaw in the same tone. "'Your name and address at our house were found in his pocket.' That and his purse were the only things that were found upon him. I am sorry to say it, my poor Nora, but you are required to go and identify him. To what? asked Nora. To say who it is. It is always done, in order that some reason may be discovered for the suicide, if suicide it was. I make no doubt he was the man who came to see you at our house last night. It is very sad, I know. He made pauses between each little clause, in order to try and bring back her senses, which he feared were wandering, so wild and sad was her look. "'Master Openshaw,' said she at last, "'I've a dreadful secret to tell you. Only you must never breathe it to anyone, and you and I must hide it away for ever.' I thought to have done it all by myself, but I see I cannot. Yon poor man, yes, the dead drowned creature, is, 
I fear, Mr. Frank, my mistress's first husband. Mr. Openshaw sat down as if shot. He did not speak, but after a while he signed to Nora to go on. "'It came to me the other night, when, God be thanked, you were all away at Richmond. He asked me if his wife was dead or alive. I was a brute, and thought more of our all coming home than of his sore trial, spoke out sharp, and said she was married again, and very content and happy.' I all but turned him away, and now he lies dead and cold. "'God forgive me,' said Mr. Openshaw. "'God forgive us all,' said Nora. "'Yon poor man needs forgiveness, perhaps less than any one among us. He had been among the savages, shipwrecked, I know not what, and he had written letters which had never reached my poor missus.' "'He saw his child?' "'He saw her. "'Yes. I took him up to give his thoughts another start, "'for I believed he was going mad on my hands. "'I came to seek him here, as I more than half promised. "'My mind misgave me when I heard he had never come in. "'Oh, sir, it must be him.' "'Mr. Openshaw rang the bell. "'Nora was almost too much stunned to wonder at what he did.' He asked for writing materials, wrote a letter, and then said to Nora, "'I am writing to Alice to say I shall be unavoidably absent for a few days, that I have found you, that you are well, and send her your love, and will come home to-morrow. You must go with me to the police court. You must identify the body. I will pay high to keep name and details out of the papers.' "'But where are you going, sir?' He did not answer her directly. Then he said, "'Nora, I must go with you, and look on the face of the man whom I have so injured. Unwittingly, it is true. But it seems to me as if I had killed him. I will lay his head in the grave as if he were my only brother, and how he must have hated me. I cannot go home to my wife till all that I can do for him is done. Then I go with a dreadful secret on my mind.' I shall never speak of it again after these days are over. I know you will not, either. He shook hands with her, and they never named the subject again, the one to the other. Nora went home to Alice the next day. Not a word was said on the cause of her abrupt departure a day or two before. Alice had been charged by her husband in his letter not to allude to the supposed theft of the brooch, so she, implicitly obedient to those whom she loved both by nature and habit, was entirely silent on the subject, only treated Nora with the most tender respect, as if to make up for unjust suspicion. Nor did Alice inquire into the reason why Mr. Openshaw had been absent during his uncle and aunt's visit, after he had once said that it was unavoidable. He came back, grave and quiet, and from that time forth was curiously changed, more thoughtful, and perhaps less active, quite as decided in conduct, but with new and different rules for the guidance of that conduct. 
Towards Alice he could hardly be more kind than he had always been, but he now seemed to look upon her as someone sacred, and to be treated with reverence as well as tenderness. He throve in business, and made a large fortune, one half of which was settled upon her. Long years after these events, a few months after her mother died, Ailsie and her father, as she always called Mr. Openshaw, drove to a cemetery a little way out of town, and she was carried to a certain mound by her maid, who was then sent back to the carriage. There was a headstone, with F.W. and a date. That was all. Sitting by the grave, Mr. Openshaw told her the story, and for the sad fate of that poor father whom she had never seen, he shed the only tears she ever saw fall from his eyes. "'A most interesting story all through,' I said, as Jarber folded up the first of his series of discoveries in triumph. "'A story that goes straight to the heart, especially at the end. But—' I stopped and looked at Trottle. Trottle entered his protest directly in the shape of a cough. <clears throat> "'Well?' I said, beginning to lose my patience. "'Don't you see that I want you to speak, and that I don't want you to cough?' "'Quite so, ma'am,' said Trottle, in a state of respectful obstinacy, which would have upset the temper of a saint. "'Relative, I presume, to this story, ma'am?' "'Yes, yes,' said Jarber. "'By all means, let us hear what this good man has to say.' "'Well, sir,' answered Trottle, "'I want to know why the house over the way doesn't let, "'and I don't exactly see how your story answers the question.' "'That's all I have to say, sir.' I should have liked to contradict my opinionated servant at that moment, but, excellent as the story was in itself, I felt that he had hit on the weak point, so far as Jarber's particular purpose in reading it was concerned. "'And that is what you have to say, is it?' repeated Jarber. "'I enter this room?' announcing that I have a series of discoveries, and you jump instantly to the conclusion that the first of the series exhausts my resources. Have I your permission, dear lady, to enlighten this obtuse person, if possible, by reading number two? My work is behindhand, ma'am said Trottle, moving to the door, the moment I gave Jarber leave to go on. "'Stop where you are,' I said in my most peremptory manner, "'and give Mr. Jarber his fair opportunity of answering your objection, now you have made it.' Trottle sat down with the look of a martyr, and Jarber began to read, with his back turned on the enemy more decidedly than ever. End of chapter 2 Recording by Ruth Golding